Hey guys, this is Pete. Before we start the show, I just wanted to give a quick shameless plug for my debut novel entitled Frankenstein A Life Beyond. It's the first direct sequel to Mary Shelley's classic and follows Ernest Frankenstein, the sole survivor of the original book. Like mystery, adventure, romance, horror, then this is the ebook for you. Check it out today on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and my website, EnceladusLiterary.com. That's E N C E L A D U S Literary.com. Thanks. Now on with the show. Welcome to Hindsight is 2020, a show where we look at anything in this world and arrogantly say how we'd fix it. And I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. These two idiots. <laughs> we give our thoughts on movies and TV shows that should or should not have been. Where did they go? Space. Not into space. Into the space between spaces. Come on, genius. With your host, Pete. <laughs> you are named after the dog. <laughs> and Greg. Got a lot of fond memories of that dog. <laughs> and we slowly and mercilessly beat our subject to death. Indeed, thank God. Don't you know it's dangerous to climb into a refrigerator? Those things can be death traps. Good to see you too, Bob. <laughs> I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. We are big time. <laughs> Not unlike <laughs> zombie Elsa. <laughs> 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 Indiana Jones! We're going to have the worst time not breaking into that. Alright. Okay. Uh, so, are you ready to start this thing? Yeah, we're going to go. Alright, you're going to start it off in 5, 4, 3, 2. Did you miss us? We're back. Yes, we are. We're back in the world of George Lucas all too soon, it seems, but we're doing it anyways, folks, because tonight, today, whatever time it is where you're listening to this, we are going to be delving into the adventure that was uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Otherwise known as, please don't put it in the box set. Indiana. Uh, we're we're uh, four years removed from this being in the theaters at this point, so why not? Eh, it doesn't it doesn't really matter how long ago it was. It was yeah. in the theaters. We've already covered the Burbs and Quantum Leap, so we've we go back into the ancient times of the eighties. So we can. Ooh, you know what? This is our. I was going to say this is our newest film that we're tackling. Here. It is. It beats the Revenge of the Sith by two or three years. Yeah. Yes, so math and me don't get along. <laughs> For the purposes of tonight, who are you? Uh, well, let's see. For this podcast, I will be uh, Noxley, um, as in not Abner Ravenwood, who's <laughs> like a grandfather to Mutt. But he's not. Yeah, but I'm not. <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> and I guess I will be... Uh... I will be Max Mustache Trimmer, I guess. Ooh, very nice. I, apparently so. I, I, I was a, <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be Max um, I, Dialect I, Coach. Yes, I was a Tauntaun Wrangler for our version <laughs> of the second prequel, so why not? Um, I'm usually an inanimate object anyways. So, yes, we are dealing with the classiness that is the fourth Indiana Jones movie, and we're going to come at it in our own fanciful way poop all over somebody else's hard work yet again seems to be the same guy george lucas <laughs> just to get ourselves started but we are coming at it from the angle this time of we're being tasked with making indiana jones 4 which obviously in the research we'll get into a lot of people did try that for 20 years 
but we're coming at it from the aspect of the studio says, okay, we're going to make Indiana Jones 4. You need to write it. It's the one we're going to make. Uh, but it has to be all the same parameters that they had for the film that came out in 2008. So Harrison Ford has to be in it. And however, he was in his like, mid-60s or late-60s and when he when he shot it. And that that's our basic parameter. Spielberg directing, I guess George Lucas is involved somehow, so we'll have to throw in some sort of digital animal that smiles and squeals at the camera for some reason. But those are our parameters. It's, it's going to come out in 2008. We got Harrison Ford, and we're going to touch on uh, the old, old original trilogy as much as humanly possible while also making a hopefully better good news story yeah we're, we're gonna be up front with you guys about this we're we're just ejecting a lot of the lucasisms um in our version but we do we did come up with a vaguely original idea as well so we're not doing crystal skulls combining together to form an alien spaceship that goes into the spaces between spaces Ooh, the mystery uh or some or something like that something yes that, <laughs> so uh, why don't we just when we kick off there as we usually do let's mm. go over what is our history with the indiana jones trilogy as it exists prior to 2008 go oxley not oxley oh why thank you um i probably saw um this is blasphemy but you gotta start somewhere i probably didn't see raiders or uh temple of doom until the mid to latter half of the 80s um and it was a tv edit for sure okay um so you know got got to know those did get to see last crusade in the theater i I think actually i saw that a couple times in the theater um when that came out um and really enjoyed that uh, kind of fast forwarding through all the years um, I did watch a portion, I wouldn't say all I watched a portion of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles it was on, what, ABC? Yeah. Back in the early 90s? I think so. Um, kind of floated in and out with interest um, with that show. I thought I thought it had some potential. Uh, did you ever watch I watched a couple Chronicles. I tried getting them on Netflix a couple years ago and tried watching a few and did not get into it. But I do remember seeing one or two back in the day and not being in love with it. I I, I don't know if that helped or hurt um, the fact that you know we had to wait essentially twenty years for another film to come out because I don't know if after that kind of fell by the wayside. I mean, Lucas obviously started getting busy with. Uh, amping up for the prequels and that kind of stuff so we can certainly I think safely say some of it had to do with that Spielberg um, also a very busy individual during this time period so um, some of that but um, it it just felt like nobody was real eager to go back into that world and I mean why would you because the third film literally ends with the heroes riding off into the sunset yes and what better ending can you have um, you know, we were coming out of the age of the 80s where everything was a trilogy and everything like that. And it's like, well, you know, in some sense, why would you need a fourth film? But it was always one of those things that was discussed. Um, the film that we got went through a lot of different writers. It went through a lot of different iterations. Um, and that's part of the reason it took so long to come to the screen. There's a trivia here from IMDb that said originally... Indy was to be up against the uprising of ex-Nazis, but Steven Spielberg felt he could not treat the Nazis lightly after directing Schindler's List, and Harrison Ford felt they had, quote, plum war the Nazis out, uh, end quote. George Lucas also felt that the 1950s decade would have to take into account the Cold War, and when he heard that Joseph Stalin had been interested in Crystal Skulls, that's why the Soviets are made into the villains in the existing film, um, the script that we got. Um, but kind of going back to my um, interaction with this, um, I was not excited at all <laughs> when I heard uh, this movie was coming out. Um, I didn't really say much to anyone about it one way or another. I don't, I don't think that you or I even had many discussions about it. 
um, coming out. It was just one of those things that didn't even register on my radar um, as coming out in 2008. And anything I heard coming from people who had gone to see it, with the exception of my parents who liked it, um, you know, was primarily not real positive. Um, and you basically had to sit me down <laughs> and force me to watch this film. Yes, I did. <laughs> that, was, that was a good time. Good times. So that that is uh, the short version of my interaction with uh, this particular franchise and uh, in particular this movie. Um, how about how about you? Fair enough. Well. I don't have as many distinct memories as to where Indiana Jones came into my life. It was kind of like my experience with Star Wars growing up that I explained in previous podcasts is that growing up, I was aware of it. It was just ingrained and in so soaked into pop culture enough that I was aware of Indiana Jones peripherally. I probably saw them on VHS or saw them on cable at some point, I know almost for a fact I did not see Temple of Doom or Raiders in the theater either. It, it, with three older brothers growing up, Star Wars was something I knew of peripherally, but Indiana Jones just didn't seem like it was anything that was huge in our household. But I do remember going to see Last Crusade, summer of 89. That's when uh, my brother and I went and saw a lot of movies that came out that big summer like Batman and the Abyss and Ghostbusters 2 I saw opening night and um, I think I saw Honey I Shrunk the Kids on opening weekend that summer <laughs> Look Who's Talking I think I saw that summer but yeah I remember seeing Last Crusade the, the my really detailed memory of seeing Last Crusade is after the movie was over let's see I was 12 at the time um but my brother brought me to our school parking lot that was by our house, and that's the first time I ever got behind the wheel of a car, was to drive the car around a circle parking lot around our grade school just to see what that was like. So that was my memory of seeing Last Crusade in the theater, was driving a car for the first time ever. Um, and then Last Crusade was part of that rotation of movies that, uh, was at the very beginning of my time of recording a lot of movies. So we we discovered uh, pay-per-view with Time Warner Cable. So we VHS copy all these movies, and me being the lazy, antisocial slob of the youth who would never get off the couch and watch things incessantly, so... On top of the heavy rotations of Back to the Future and Die Hard, suddenly all those 89 movies got an endless rotation on VHS, which was Lethal Weapon 2 and Batman and uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. But Last Crusade was in that heavy, heavy, heavy rotation of seeing it an inordinate amount of times. Mm. So when I finally did go back and watch Raiders... It didn't have as much of a cultural impact as people have it because I honestly saw Last Crusade so much that that was that's the one I always gravitate to for my memories and thoughts of of this series is is Last Crusade. That's the one I latch on to. Yeah, I think some of the older boys in my neighborhood, because um, I grew up in a neighborhood with mostly um, boys. And uh, they had gone and seen... Did you grow up in Penn State? Oh, wait, what? Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, they had gone and seen uh, both of the first two films in the theater, and they, you know, would come back and talk to me about it and everything. I was always, like, peripherally aware of, basically, you know, these stories and this character and everything like that, but... It was there. It was there. That was as far as it went when they actually were released. Yeah, and then we get up to this this uh, this celluloid experiment known as Crystal Skull of 2008. <laughs> it, it, it really does lend credence to the fact that you can never go home again. All these guys, <laughs> Lucas coming back to Star Wars, Spielberg coming back to, to uh, Indiana Jones. I mean, hell, even uh, last year, Wes Craven coming back to, to Scream. You 
it, they're just proving more and more that you cannot take a humongous gap of time between when you last shot your last movie of the series and when you shoot the next one with the same people. Not a reboot, not a redo, but it, it just is proving endlessly that it never works. You can't just take a 10 to 20 year gap off after you've done a series of films and then think we're going to hop right back in and do something good because Scream 4 was barely passable. Indiana Jones 4 was awful. The Star Wars prequels, we've already covered that at nauseum. Ooh, so you're looking forward to Lethal Weapon 5? There's another one. Lethal. <laughs> that wasn't as a tremendous amount of time, but still, it seemed pretty well wrapped up in 1992 with, with Lethal Weapon 3. Then they did Lethal Weapon 4 in 98, and it just is a complete afterthought. Uh, right. It just well, they happened. Are, they are doing a Lethal Weapon 5, I believe. So. Yeah, but at this point, you have to wonder, is it going to be a reboot, or is it going to be with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover? Well, that's fair. I, I just know they're doing it. I haven't actually read anything about it, so who, who knows? Yeah, I, I'm trying to rack my brain, and I only have two examples of movies that had a, a large swath of time in the film series and came back to the same characters. That's Freddy versus Jason, where people generally accepted as successful that was a large amount of time where it had basically the same people involved or the same person mm -hmm. and uh the paul newman series where he did the he played the character in the hustler in the early 60s and then came back and won an oscar for it in 86 in the color of money playing the same character mm -hmm. it's not a film series but he came in and played the same character but it, it doesn't work. That's why I'm fearful of upcoming... I mean, we're completely off tangent here, but... Uh, I'm, oh, fe I'm fear... <laughs> this is our recording, so skip uh, ahead if you want to. Uh, the idea of Anchorman 2, it, it should have been done in, like, 2006, 2007. Now that they're going to start shooting it next year for an end-of-year release or something, that, it's almost 10 years I mean, that was 2004, I think, that that came out, or 2005. Yeah, so. so I'm getting fearful of that in the same milieu of you just, you can never go home again, Oatman, but I guess you can shop there. I will just continuously use that line because it has such strong meaning for this. It, it's the idea of me calling out my roots here of being a Cincinnati man, but... Years and years ago, people always saying in the Cincinnati Reds baseball team, we need to bring Sparky Anderson back as a manager, even though he had retired 10 years earlier and hadn't been a manager for the Reds in 25 years. And that, that would have just been the dumbest idea in the history of mankind because it would have never worked and it would have tarnished his image. And I think that's what we come down to on all of these. These guys come back, they try to do this, they try to recapture that magic, it never works, and it tarnishes the image of what came before it that everyone loved. Yeah, um, we're, well, let me ask you this. Were you excited about this movie at no. all? I mean, I, I just flat out said no. <laughs> no, I really wasn't. I, I've had did a, you see this in the theater? I did, and that's only because of my six or seven year run here of when I get to the summer and I'm bored, I have a movie theater that is less than ten minutes away from my driveway, so... I will just go and see just something. As long as there is something that even holds the vaguest of interest, I'll go see it. And that's where this was in 2008. I just rolled down the streets. I'm like, well, I'll just go see it. It was not, I got to go see Indiana Jones. It was literally, okay, I've already seen Iron Man. I've already seen this. I'll just go see Indiana Jones. And I, I realized very quickly as the film was rolling about past the 30-minute mark, that uh, this was not a pleasant experience. <laughs> How, I, I, I don't know if you remember this or not. I mean, it was four years ago, but do you remember much of the audience reaction? I mean, did you have much of an audience when you went? Like, there was a little... it seemed to be playing? And there was a little bit of an audience, and it just was flat. There was no real responses to anything. Mm. It, it, the stuff that you'd think was supposed to get a response was... I, I think there was one or two times where the responses, you could just hear this collective 
ugh, what the? It's <laughs> <laughs> just going across the Should crowd. Call out the moments. <laughs> there were several. So what what did we get here? What did we ultimately get that we're about ready to hack and slash through? All right. Well, um, kind of tagging back in, and I won't go. I won't go very far into depth with this. But again, the the trivia mentions that. M. Night Shyamalan and Tom Stoppard were both uh, asked to create a draft of uh, this screenplay. Uh, if you want to read um, kind of a more detailed uh, accounting, Frank Darabont also uh, took a stab at doing this, and actually it seems that his script is the one that uh, the skeletal structure of which kind of turned into what became the Crystal Skull. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a uh, interesting little read here on a site called Film School Rejects uh, that goes into more detail about that, if that sounds like something that uh, anybody's interested in checking out. Um, but the story itself that we got <laughs> saddled with uh, for this, and again, I'll just go back to the wonderfulness of IMDb, uh, during the Cold War, Soviet agents watch Professor Henry Jones when a young man brings him a coded message from an aged, demented colli- colleague, Henry Oxley. Led by the brilliant Irina Spalko? Sure. Soviets- <laughs> That's how little I remember the film. I don't remember her name. The Soviets tail Jones and the young man Mutt to Peru. With Oxley's code, they find a legendary skull made of a single piece of quartz. If Jones can deliver the skull to its rightful place, all may be well. But if Irena takes it to its origin, she'll gain powers that could endanger the West. Aging professor and the aging professor and young Buck join forces with a woman from Jones's past, Marion Ravenwood, uh, to face the dangers of the jungle, Russia, and the supernatural. Ooh. I'm just going to stop you right there because this song just sounds like shit. Maybe it doesn't sound like shit, and that's being unfair, but it just keeps bringing up memories of the actual thing we got. And it was just, it, oh, man, I wish I could be positive about some of the stuff that we got before as uh, well, let's, let's we go through this. Let's, but Let's talk about the exceptional <laughs> stuff, the stuff that we look at in horror when well, we attempt back and watch this and we're not using it as a coaster. Well, I think the first thing we mutually agreed on after that time you finally did watch it why in god's name does indiana jones turn in to the grumpiest old sack of crap for the last 75 percent of the movie he gets nuked in the fridge and turns into an angry old bastard at everybody yeah the character just is off um is the only way to describe it he doesn't have to do I don't know, he's basically just running around there in this uh, warehouse in Area 51 at the very beginning. And then, as you mentioned, we get blown up by the fridge. The um, stop moment where the groundhog or prairie dog or whatever it is is... The Lucas moment. Blinking at him and he's blinking at the prairie dog. <laughs> and then the next scene, he's in talking to some, what, FBI guys or something... And from that scene on, I don't know if it was the radiation or what that did it to him. He's pissed off. He is angry. And I mean, For no reason. Like, Indiana Jones can be intense. Indiana Jones can, you know, uh, react to things. We don't have a problem with that. He obviously does that plenty in the other movies. Um, but... This just isn't the right character. I don't no. know who this is. And then the We're moment close, but that's it. The moment that crystallizes it, and I'll have to edit it in here, is the uh, just being pissed off at Mutt for no reason other than come on, genius, you friggin' oh, idiot, Peruvian weird Peruvian people who can jump around and poison darts scare you. Oh. So this completely nonsensical, out-of-the-blue attack, and you're acting like it's surprising, idiot. <laughs> it's, and yeah. the, the way he interacted, not that she had much to do, but the way that she, he interacted with Marion was just like, huh? Mm, yeah, <laughs> nothing, nothing seemed to click. Nothing, nothing seemed to click. We had, 
Uh, in my mind, at least, I, I don't know how you feel about this. We had a villain slash villainess in this, uh, played by Kate Blanchett, where I just felt bad for her the whole time. Um, because again, she was so one note and uh, what was her big crime? She wanted to learn stuff. She, the, I guess the whole basis that Lucas wanted was the the idea that the Soviets were trying to do psychic experiments and trying to control things psychically, and she was the leading edge of that. And when, and she was obsessed with getting all of this. I, I guess the whole point was you bring all the crystal skulls together. And you're then going to be opening yourself up to the entire universe of knowledge will be presented to you, and she wanted that more than anything. Yeah, so I greed, I guess, was her. I, I, I guess, <laughs> I guess, but I think that's enough about what we got because it obviously it just. I don't care even about spoiling it. If somebody's listening to this who cares about spoiling it, here's the thing. The Crystal Skulls put back together. It's a bunch of aliens on thrones who then get into a rotating flying saucer that comes out of the ground, flies away. The grandfather, who's not a grandfather, Oxley, then says that they went to these spaces between spaces, or the space between spaces. Yeah, insert joke here regardless. And then Indy marries Marion Ravenwood for some reason, and uh, Mutt picks up his hat but Indiana takes it from him and says not yet you friggin douchebag and then he walks <laughs> out of the church angry and pissed off and then now me married to Karen Allen who did nothing but smile and and say hey, I'm smiling for some purpose and none of, the, none of these people really had anything to do and their motivations were never clear especially uh, the Mac character who's supposed to be this kind of double triple agent guy um who indiana knows from back during world war ii and is there in like the opening uh section of the film and almost to the end of it and everything and he's he's a no idea british (laughs) he's a british soldier fought with indiana in the war but he's on the side of the soviets while working for the americans as a double cross while also being part of Guam's Secret Service or something. Yeah. It's, it's, it's convoluted and messy and pointless. Messy. There we go. <laughs> a lot of characters unnecessarily are added, and that's what we're going to try to tackle here. So let us now begin with our ideas sketched out for, shall we say the title up front? Sure. Indiana Jones and Zeus's Fire. Because I guess what what has been untapped in the three previous movies, everything in the three previous movies was either Christianity or some odd Eastern Tibetan stone cult thing. I get, well, I guess you kind of had a religious aspect with the cult thing. And yeah. So there was something that in the research uh, over those 20 years of screenwriting trying to come up with it for... There was a lot of hints that uh, they were going the right way that we are going to go. Greek mythology, those, that's a religion. Greek and Roman mythology, that's hardly ever touched upon. And you talk about artifacts, uh, where we're going to, I'll blow it right now, where we end our version of the movie is in Athens, Greece. I mean, what, what's better ground zero for artifacts and archaeologists than Athens, Greece? Well, and if you want to talk about cultures and ideas that, you know, have spanned the centuries and, you know, countries and even empires and everything that have, you know, risen and fallen and or continue to survive and thrive, um, you know, it it tends to go back at some point um, to, you know, the mythology, the stories, the uh, legacy, I guess, of... Greek and Roman culture. Exactly. So, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, well, um, one thing that we have discussed and kind of noticed with uh, the existing film is that the typically in the other three films, when you open an Indiana Jones movie, you're kind of 
supposed to be coming in on the back half of like an adventure that's kind of in the phases of wrapping up. Like so, a Bond opening. Yeah. Uh, you get there right as that storyline, whatever it is, is kind of coming to a head, kind of climaxing. You get to ride through the rapids, so to speak, and then you uh, get into whatever it is that the main story about that particular movie is going to be about. That didn't really happen in <laughs> Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. No, Crystal Skull, the opening sequence was the opening of the movie. It led right into the same story. And obviously there's something to the formula that works because the first three movies all had the tail end of a previous indie adventure that really didn't tie into what we were going to see. And apparently all the Bond movies did that, which we'll get into that in the future of how much or how little I've seen of the Bond movies. Hell, even Dark Knight, the reason is <laughs> one of the reasons why the Dark Knight works so well. The opening sequence is Batman taking down the Scarecrow and then moving on to some other shit. Mm-hmm. It works. So yeah. why didn't they do it? They didn't. <laughs> and it, it didn't. Maybe that's one reason. It just didn't work. Yeah, so it, it, it just it it kind of threw things off. I mean, again, we, we don't have to be slaves to a formula. We get that. There's It's 20 years later. You want to do something a little bit different. That's fine. Um, but we do think that, you know, that's an interesting way to do it, um, kind of going off of riffing off of the uh, main idea, which is, you know, Indiana Jones is supposed to be an, an homage to the serials of the 1930s, 40s, um, you know, where that would have been very typical. So we're kind of going back to that. Yes. So we open our movie in 1945. And we're... We are in Nazi Germany. Yes, we're in Berlin. So, and But we're not going to make this all about the Nazis. It's only the opening sequence. It's, it's like getting rid of the, the baggage of the three movies by having just the opening sequence be with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So the idea is is that Indiana, and we do have a Mac in here because he would have a partner. He's been he's been in the war because obviously he's going to fight in a war if it's there. And well, let's face it, the man's good at what he does with killing Nazis. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, so maybe he jousts them on another motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. But the idea being that Indy and Mac, whatever are they're kind of super secret agents but it's tailored towards indiana's archaeological background so what we're seeing here is that he's been sent all across germany trying to save artifacts i mean you you equate it to 2003 when we go into iraq and some of the stories that came out of iraq were that all these things that were in a museum in Baghdad that were some of the oldest human artifacts in history were just destroyed by the bombing. So Indiana and Mac are tasked with going into Berlin to try and get as many artifacts out before the, before Berlin falls and who knows what's lost. Yeah, and I mean, this again, we're grounding ourselves in something that is set up um, very specifically in the opening of the third movie. Um, and that's, you know, the whole idea of when he's chasing down that cross of Coronado that it belongs in a museum type mm-hmm. of thing. And, again, historically speaking, uh, there was a lot of concern about, you know, the Nazis stealing art and using it to, you know, continue to fund the war and, um, you know, bombings destroying this building or this artifact or that kind of thing. So we're not totally pulling this out of nowhere. Correct. <laughs> we do have reasons for doing this. Uh, but yeah, they you know are sneaking into some place. We can you know however way you would want to play it out here, um, and I, they could set something off. Someone could come in and find them. You know, I, I think we'd go for a little bit lighter tone probably at the beginning of this. Yeah, I think the idea that they would be maybe somewhere near the Reichstag or near the uh, Hitler's bunker. <laughs> they maybe the the door opens to the bunker and they. They see, like, uh, Hitler and Ava Braun sitting in a back room, and then the door closes. <laughs> something, yeah, could, something, something something, goofy. Something you know? silly like that, and then they take off, and they're being chased. Like, they accidentally stumble across an entrance to Hitler's bunker, um, and 
just something silly and then they're being chased by nazi soldiers as they're trying to get out of berlin but you know one of the objects one of the things we got to remember is that there's an object that maybe or maybe not marcus brody has specifically asked for or it's just something that indiana gets that he brings to marcus that will come back later when we move on uh to our later scenes yeah so we're again we're setting up an object that's going to play a role in the story, but... But you cue the Peter Griffin... (laughs) You cue in the chase music as they are trying to flee Berlin with their package of artifacts in Indy's satchel or a bag or something, and Mac can die. We say that tongue-in-cheek, and we say that very forcefully based on what we saw. Mac can die. <laughs> we don't need this guy to live to the end. And it pro- and it's more poignant if he dies and it was a partner Indy's been fighting in the war with, so he can have a little bit of a melancholy there. But on the way out he dies and then we can have a a significant moment of the Harrison Ford smirk to the camera as he comes across like a crest of a hill or around a building, he's got these Nazis chasing him, and he sees that the full-fledged Allied army is at Berlin's doorstep, and he gets away scot-free as they blow up all the Nazis who are chasing him. Uh, you know, that that metaphorical, the Nazis are always chasing Indiana Jones, but now his countrymen just blow them all to smithereens. The final, like you said, the final chapter of these guys, basically. <laughs> the Nazis, as Indiana smirks on his way out of Berlin, carrying precious artifacts, which that's that's our prologue. Yeah, and it, it reintroduces us to the character, reminds us why, you know, we like this guy, why we root for this guy. Um, I, I think it's true to the character, which is important. And um, it requires Harrison Ford. Sorry, (laughs) it requires Harrison Ford to be in a makeup chair for only a couple of days, but that's fine. He just a little de aging makeup never hurt nobody. Yeah, and um, you know it it bridges that gap in a sense between uh, where we left off with him in the 1930s, and you know we get to see him doing something heroic related to the war, and since we're going to set the main story in 1955, ten years later, uh, from our prologue and everything like that, you know, it's a nice little bridge. Absolutely. I like it. And that's Indiana Jones for That's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Just blow up the Nazis and a smiling Indiana Jones. Now, we'll go to 1955 now, and... What he- is he doing in 1955? I, I want to know. Yeah, he's a teacher. He's a professor. Still, Par- well, part time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's a professor. He's teaching at the university. He's, he could maybe be a big wig there now. Yeah, we we're we're gonna get a sense that you know why why run from the fact that this guy's older. Oh yeah, and I I forgot to mention do. We never figured out because uh, one of the things that stipulated when we first started talking about doing this particular show mm-hmm. was I don't care what it takes. If it takes paying for the next 15 generations of conneries to make <laughs> sure they can all have palaces, we're going to dump truck gold onto the driveway of Sean Connery so he can show up for one day's worth of shooting to be in the film somehow more than a still, a photograph because it it would be a good passing of the torch. So whether or not he's in oh, we'll we'll take a phone discussion here. Yeah, so yeah, anything. He he's he's in a rest home and he's he's still mentally sort of there but some sort of visit to 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 the Connery, some sort of inclusion of Sean Connery. Uh oh, yeah, so would be rather wonderful. Yes, somehow Connery has to be involved. What he does, I don't know, but it needs to be something more than here's a still image from a press shot from 1989. Oh, yeah, and Dad, and Dad's dead. Uh, Moving on. We lost Dad. We got in Crystal Skull. So. Oh, kid, we lost Dad. Let's move on. 
You find this man with one arm. <laughs> uh, the other thing we have is that uh, Indiana Jones can be married to someone <laughs> to someone we've never met before, because in three previous movies he had a woman we never met before. <laughs> so why not now? What's the difference? Yeah, we don't need Marion Ravenwood. If or, if or we can have her briefly in here, but she does not have to be the crux. We'll put her briefly in here. If for no other reason than we can assume that Karen Allen had pictures of Steven Spielberg with farm animals, so we're going to go ahead and make sure that Karen Allen can have a two-minute sequence in here where she can come in and say, Indiana Jones, never thought I'd see you come into my coffee shop ever again. So she's running a coffee shop and she's gambling with people about downing shots of cappuccino or something. Yeah. Espresso shots instead of other alcohol Indiana Jones has settled down a little bit here he survived the war God knows he's earned a little bit of a break after some of his earlier adventures and everything anyways Mm -hmm. he's not totally out to pasture here Um, but you know the wife knows him in a totally different capacity than we know the character as yes Um, he's just Dr. Jones the way we could see it is his wife is a also a professor and this will come in. She's a professor of Greek mythology, Greek and Roman mythology. And she maybe can be British or something, some other allied force or something like that, that uh, she was married previously and lost her husband in the war. Uh, this will lead to, if we really do need to have a next generation, it does not have to be a next generation of blood. She can have a full-grown son that maybe doesn't like Indiana Jones all that much. Yeah, we can still play with the idea of there being you know, a kid around and him having some of that... Um, the mutt quality? The mutt quality type of thing. But, yeah, we want to go a little bit different direction here as far as offspring goes, so... And, and this kid does not have to be involved in the adventure whatsoever. no. no. We kind of were, we had a father and son outing here with the last movie with uh, Crusade. So correct. Why, so why do it again? Let's go. Let's go back to the Indiana and a woman adventure. Mm-hmm. And it's not Willie Scott, and it's not Marion Ravenwood. It's uh, it's it's an older professor who has never known Doctor Henry Jones to handle a whip. So when he first cracks the whip, she's going to be either A, a little pleased, B, a little scared, or C, just a little excited. Who knows? But it, it'll be interesting. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's bringing Marcus Brody along in Last Crusade, yet she has a little bit more purpose in her knowledge of Greek mythology that can play out later, but she has no business... She's not a field agent. Let's put it yeah, that way. Yeah, but uh, again, I think I think we should be clear about something here. We're not trying to recreate Willie Scott. We we don't want her running around and just screaming through half the film. Oh and, no, uh, like heavens no! Comic relief or something like that. Um, you know, as we go through the adventure, we want to see what it is about these two that you know make them mesh. That you know, well, why did they choose to marry one another and that type of thing? Um, so, you know. Whereas she's going to be starting out with a different perspective on the character of Indiana slash Dr. Jones than the audience will, you know, as she kind of comes to know him in that light, we're also going to be getting to know more about her and kind of rounding out her character as well. So we're not looking for a bumbling sidekick and we're not looking for somebody who's just going to be the perpetual damsel in distress or anything like that. So she will, she will prove her usefulness later on. Uh, either mentally, and she can maybe get in on some of the action. But, yeah, she's not a screaming damsel. She is just somebody who comes along for the ride and is surprised by each of the turns. She could be the every man in the audience who is not usually out cracking whips and on worldwide adventures. And if you think about that in some ways, if you really want to tie it in with the existing Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and everything like that, I mean, that's basically the role that Mutt had to fulfill, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, he was, you know, he was taken into a world that he wasn't used to and that type of thing. Uh, One can only... Well, yeah, but then he ended up... Yeah, and he ended up sword fighting with digital monkeys, but... Shh, shh. 
<laughs> Spoiler! <laughs> about those digital lands. <laughs> but she comes along for the ride. That's right. Well, let's talk about what the adventure is that we're getting getting ourselves into here. So Go for it. We, we had our opening prologue. We've established that he's married. We've had a nice chat with Dad, with Henry uh, Jones, who was Jr., and uh, lo and behold, who shows up but more government goons. Hired goons. That's right. So we are in the midst of the Cold War, um, and they have come because, oh, gasp and shock, we have a problem with the Russians, and we need your help, Dr. Jones. Uh, it involves the, our MacGuffin uh, for this particular um, story, and that's this Zeus's Fire. Um, and what the concern is with this, basically, is that um, kind of there are clues in mythology that the Soviets have started to kind of follow. Um, so somewhat similar to, you know, raiders and that type of thing with that. Um, and they're looking for this Zeus's fire uh, that purportedly exists. And uh, this was something that was so powerful that you know, supposedly it was responsible for the destruction of Atlantis. Um, and it's something that if the Soviets find it, it could upset the balance of the Cold War. That's their big concern, that this is going to be something that could tip the scales um, in the Soviets' favor and that the nuclear deterrent on either side is no longer going to be sufficient and, you know, here comes World War Three, basically. So we're setting big stakes here. Yeah, and one of the artifacts that he got out of Berlin is either tied directly into this, or it is the MacGuffin artifact mm-hmm. that he, he he got and is in the, his museum. So maybe he can... There, there can be an air of mistrust of the government because of the whole McCarthyism and the Red Scare. So... Maybe he doesn't cooperate like he did in the beginning of Raiders with the chalkboard scene where I'm going to be a teacher. Maybe this time around he's much more skeptical of these guys and wants them to, to leave. And then once they leave, he goes to this artifact that he he knew all along what they were talking about. And, and, we, oh, sorry. Oh, and then he goes and talks about it with his wife about what she knows about this Greek Yeah, mythology. I just wanted to... I just wanted to tag in real quick. We we did discuss, uh, I think it was Marcus primarily, but I mean it could have been Indy's father or somebody uh, with the whole McCarthyism thing of, you know, being accused in some way. And, um, you know, Marcus passed on in part because of the stress of kind of dealing with all of that, and Indy is now kind of running Marcus's museum. Sure. So, yeah. And he got lost in it, in his own museum. That... that that's true. <laughs> and he remembered his Charlemagne. <laughs> One, <there's> two, <laughs> uh, there is a specific scene we talked about here that is pure audience service. Mm-hmm. And it's this not... Is our, this is our fanboyness here. Yeah, and it's not audience service like, uh, there's a pod race, but, oh, look, there's Tusken Raiders shooting at him. <laughs> here, here comes Jabba the Hutt. Yay! No, this is fan service in the fact that Indiana has to go to his back of his closet and pulls out his dusty fedora and his jacket and his whip and his satchel and his pistol. They're all in the back of the closet growing, gaining dust. So he he's pulling these things out, and it's, and it's like, well, he hasn't worn these things. Maybe the last time he wore these things is when he got, just barely got out of Berlin 10 years earlier and we saw it. So he's pulling these things out of the mothballs, just like we're pulling Indiana Jones out of the mothballs. And then we have another true fan service moment for <laughs> the Spielbergs of the of the world. <laughs> it's it's too simple not to do it. Is to have Indiana trying on his old stuff, and he puts on his leather jacket, and it doesn't fit. And on the way out of his office. The button on the scene is he looks in the mirror and says, I'm going to need a bigger coat. And he, walks, and he walks out, and the audience would have one of those, oh, but damn, that was funny, but oh, that was a groaner. But it's necessary. <laughs> it's necessary for this to make sure people know where we are. We're in a fun Indiana Jones movie, 
and we get it. And you want to see the guy put the hat back on. Come on. Exactly. You don't suit him back up for the adventure. Yeah, you don't want to open the movie in the first shot as well. He's still wearing the same clothes for the last 20 years. (laughs) He hasn't changed anything. Damn, those things just keep going. He needs to be wearing the professor gear of the 50s and has to pull this stuff out of mothballs. And then we're off. We're off on the adventure. Now, we have not gotten a whole lot of detail in this because, well, frankly, we're not paid screenwriters. We're free podcasters. Yeah, we're just throwing it out there. But using the mythology of Greece, there can be the trottings across the globe trying to find, trying to chase different leads, trying to outrun the Soviets. We can cast Kate Blanchett again. But we changed her character up a little bit, too. First of all, she has better hair. Well, sure. <laughs> and uh, she, she lost the bulge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very Soviet block, but yeah, it was dumb. <laughs> what uh, what we changed her to is again the reality of the situation spun into our Indiana Jones world. She was an ex-Nazi scientist. Because what happened to all those Nazi scientists? How the hell did the Americans get to the moon? From ex-Nazi scientists they got during the Potsdam Conference after World War II. They were kind of, the spoils were split between the U.S. and the USSR, starting the whole Cold War history lesson, kids. But the Nazi scientists were part of the treasure that was split between the two new superpowers. So this is, she's a... Uh, ex-Nazi scientist that the Soviets are trying to use to uh, she's obviously she's building bombs for them H-bombs A-bombs but some I I guess there could be some clown who's going along with her that could be the the archaeologist of the the belloc of their side (laughs) and she's not the archaeologist, she's a scientist who knows a little bit about this stuff, and she's along for the ride, too, trying to solve the mystery. And we can have a little twist with her at the end, too. Oh, do you want me to go reveal that? Or, or <laughs> yes! Do you want me to reveal that or let that lie? Yeah, you, know, you can keep going because I don't want to hear the sound of my own voice oh, anymore. Well, fair enough. All right. Well, we also included, <laughs> you know, since she is from Germany, she was a Nazi and everything like that. We said, well, you know what? She's also Elsa's sister. Yes. <laughs> so we had we had another interesting little layer and dynamic and everything like that. Um, until the grand Jones. until the grand twist of the ending credits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not giving that away. But. <laughs> but yes, uh, the Kate Blanchett character is is Elsa's it's sister. Elsa's sister back for revenge. <laughs> <laughs> but we go across the world, we globe trot, and there were two callback things. We had you know Marion Ravenwood could have a coffee shop, and there's some maybe there's something else that Abner Ravenwood had that she maybe has in Indiana's trying to find and. Uh, there could be maybe a little bit of a spark, and then all of a sudden she sees the wedding ring on his finger and goes away or whatever, and it's just old friends meeting. Don't necessarily have to be old lover friends or whatever. No. And, and then maybe we could find a grown-up short round who's a curator of a museum somewhere. Yeah, or you know, joins them for a leg of the adventure or something like that. Same thing with Sala. We'd like to see him again. If Sala's still around. If Sala's still around. Why not? But, um, you know, I, the that's that's the point. Then that's, I think, some of the brilliance of this is you can paint in broad strokes with it, and, you know, we can include or not include whoever we would like. We could bring in, you know, totally new people. It doesn't always have, it doesn't have to be the same people we already know and everything like that and build up the world a little bit more. But the basic idea is that they have to go to a couple of different locations, either hunting for artifacts or clues, just like you do in the other Indiana Jones movies and everything like that. And, of course, you run into danger along the way. Uh, what we kind of decided was that the what they're going to kind of find out or conclude uh, after you know some of this running around and everything like that 
was that the Greek gods were based on kind of a historical tribe on actual historical events, um, and then were kind of fictionalized and dressed up. Um, so, you know, taking something that's abstract as the Greek gods and Olympus and all that kind of stuff and making it something more earthbound, uh, more kind of human and everything like that. Um, you know, we still have the mystery and the mythology kind of driving uh, the clues and the adventure and everything like that. But, you know, we use that for grounding purposes and everything. So we had them going, you know, they could go to uh, where the Oracle of Delphi used to be. We, we talked about going into Athens and everything like that. We were also talking about doing some stuff with some underwater uh, kind of adventure. Yeah, there never really has been anything underwater outside of he was on a submarine once and they had to get under the flooded water with all the rats in the sewers in Last Crusade and he jumped in the water to swim to the plane and raiders. But maybe something where he actually has to go underwater to find something. and uh, maybe Maybe they dive down to where they think Atlantis, you know, was or something like that. They find some underwater cave where, uh, you know, we get into kind of the buildup for the big climax and everything. So, uh, you know, maybe he's taken his MacGuffin and they're deciphering clues and everything like that. And they come into a chamber and they think it's going to be easy to, you know, get their hands on what they need or something. And uh, as they start looking around, they realize kind of like the terracotta warriors in China and everything like that, that the little statue that he has found that he thinks is going to be the key to this, well, there's like 400 of them in this chamber, and only one of them actually, you know, takes him to the next step or reveals the weapon or, or something along those lines. So, you know, we can have fun little puzzles for him to have to solve, and Again, this is where uh, the wife character would come in and be an asset to him because she's, you know, the expert, knows the background better than he does. So, And there could be some sequence where maybe his wife is taken by the Soviets and is thrown underwater as almost bait for Indiana Jones and he has to swim down to rescue her. And when he's rescuing her, she's actually getting excited because she sees something that leads her to believe that she's found she's that they're at where Atlantis is. Maybe she finds some sort of artifact when she's underwater and he's trying to save her and she's smiling and he's having a tough time getting her to come with him up to the surface. Cause she's realizing that she's found something cool. I mean, there could be a, a little sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, we want to make this thing fun. We want to make the Indiana Jones character fun again that was just so lacking in the fourth installment that we did get yeah that's the whole point and ultimately they discover that Zeus's fire was something that this family that the gods were based on uh, this actual family had discovered some property or some element that was completely isolated to just them that created an ancient what essentially amounted to an ancient atomic bomb almost and it sunk Atlantis so the actual Atlantis was real and it was it destroyed the continent and that's the reason why they became this this legend because they had this power that in the 50s obviously when the atomic bomb was so big that's the corollary is that they had the power that now we're harnessing all over again thinking we're big fancy new and we've got it and yet it's the power of nature that we're we're messing with as humans. Mm-hmm. So it's always existed, and this is one of those things that Indiana can give the lesson to. And it's not the what somebody call the 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 premature ejaculation ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> where it's big build up, big build up, big build up. Shut your eyes! What a <laughs> what a hero! <laughs> Just you shut your eyes. You, you didn't do anything. <laughs> Don't hold these flaming rocks on my bag. <laughs> yeah, that in the second movie. Yeah, he, did, he didn't do anything. Well, that's when he does something. He gives him a lesson. He says, you know, he already got the power. Look, it's already happened once. It destroyed an entire continent. This is a lesson that you need to 
to learn not to blow each other up and somehow he gets rid of Zeus's fire or it gets thrown into a carton well, and we shipped talk- off with the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, we talked about that. We talked about, you know, maybe the way that the arming mechanism is or something like that. You you do the opposite of what you would, you know, normally think to do and instead of, you know, trying to defuse or get away from the bombs or something like that, maybe you try to fire them all up at once and the way that this arming mechanism works, it just kind of overloads it. and Possibly. You know, that type of thing. But the big thing is by the end, um, you know, nobody ends up with this object and that, you know, balance of the Cold War is basically maintained. Uh, so he does save the day in that sense. Yes, and dear audience, we're not... Uh, this is one of our least detailed versions, but it's still... There's a bare-bones idea, a skeleton idea that we think, again, seems to make this work better and as also seems to be our M.O. so far through these episodes, it seems to make whatever came before more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually we'll get into something that we're going to say, this needs to be more dramatic or this needs to be more scary. Everything we've done so far, this is included. It needs to be more fun. What we got in Crystal Skull was not fun. It was boring, trite, and confusing. It was just a mess. This, we're hoping, is more fun with meaning. If we're going to do this in the mode of saying this is Spielberg doing this 20 years later after he's done Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Munich, Saving Private Ryan, after he's done all these things, he's going to want to put something with a little more brains to it than just illumination and riding off into the sunset. He's going to have fun but with a with a a motif which is thrown in at the end and we're kind of in a sense moving indie into a new step here as well which they did you know try to do in the fourth film with him getting married at the end of it and everything but i mean you know he basically has a partner a partner who is you know more or less his equal by the end of this yes so and since this is an Indiana Jones movie, and so far we've had three movies where the hand of God flies out and blows people's heads up, and <laughs> um, a guy takes a, so another guy's heart out with his hand, and another one where you meet a several hundred-year-old knight who drank from a cup. So what can we do in the supernatural realm and we can do it in a tag at the end of the credits so we can be like all the Marvel <laughs> movies are now. <laughs> so we have the renewed marriage of Indiana Jones and said professor wife who has seen a different side of him. They're excited. They maybe travel more. Maybe at the beginning of our movie they're just stuck in a rut and they're both older professors and don't really do anything now they maybe travel the world and and she's more excited now to to maybe go off on adventures but what do we have at the ending credits tag scene (laughs) zombie elsa shows up (laughs) she survived the pit (laughs) as she fell down the pit in last crusade she managed to drink from the cup of christ she survived the fall, and she's been climbing out ever since, ready to get revenge on Indiana Jones. <laughs> so zombie Elsa shows up with a shotgun or a bazooka. Uh, she can actually do a uh, mimic scene of the... Uh, the scene can be a mimic of the Raiders of the Lost Ark scene when he's up on the ledge with the bazooka. Hey! <laughs> He's up with a bazooka, ready to take him down out of revenge. <laughs> you think you can leave me behind, Indiana? <laughs> <laughs> and we're off to the next Indiana Jones adventure. Indiana Jones and the zombie Elsa. <laughs> and the Elsa zombie. <laughs> and that, that's Indiana Jones and Zeus's fire. Yeah. As best as we can do it. <laughs> Indiana Jones! <laughs> <laughs>
you're gonna have her show up at any point here. So. <laughs> no, it's just it's the next adventure. I love that. It's the next adventure in and just zombie Elsa. Oh my! Exactly. Well, if we didn't just scare everyone off. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our Indiana Jones 4, and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. So I will make sure that I go and trim Max's mustache right now. And just remember, I am not your grandfather. But you're like one. You're such like a grandfather, but you're not for no good reason at all. no good reason at all. (laughs) So, uh, so Oxley, what, what did you learn from this journey? I I learned that there is more to the space between spaces. Oh, good. I was hoping you would say illumination. Oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> good night, everybody. We'll see you later. Yes. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. Episodes can be downloaded on iTunes or at EnceladusLiterary.com. Opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect those of Enceladus Literary. Okay, but... Ah!